Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Before we begin tonight, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, and we'll be there in a minute. We'll go through multiple verses in that chapter of Isaiah. But notice the uh, opening introduction questions there on your handout. If you're using the study guide, it's page 58. Those discussion questions at the beginning of the lesson, page 58 in the study guide are the first ones on your handout. As we begin to talk tonight, think about these questions. Do you have a daily routine? Do you have a daily routine? You might not be a person that's organized or have a schedule with, you know, your color-coded time blocks on your calendar. Maybe you do. That's, you know, good for you. Uh, But we all have a routine. No matter how unorganized it may feel, there's a routine. I mean, every morning... You know, Anna's going to come into our room and tell us to get up, and then, <laughs> and then we're going to have to ask, what do you want for breakfast? And then we're going to go through the litany of all the things we have for breakfast, which was the same stuff we had the day before, but we have to list it all again before they eventually just say oatmeal. And then uh, we go on from there. there everybody has a routine, so uh, think about yours. Um, but here's a follow-up question to that, though. Of all the things that you do in that routine, think of just your daily routine, normal stuff, What things are intentionally done for God? What things are intentionally done for others? And what things are intentionally done for yourself? I begin to think about those things you do, and I think if you're like me, we very quickly begin to think that most of the things we do, at least in my routine, are more than likely intentionally for me or more than likely intentionally for someone else and maybe those things that you think would be intentionally done for God maybe that may, they might be harder to come by unless you're like praying or singing in your car or singing in the shower or going to church or something like that you might put that in that category well which category wins I think somewhere between things done for others as in like my family or at work or things done for myself as I study or whatever it is throughout the day Um, those categories tend to win for me, but which ones win for you? And as you think about that in those categories, listen to this question. If the future heaven, or what we call the new earth, the future heaven, new earth, if that will be like real life in a real place, what might be your routine then? Well, you have a routine in heaven. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about having a routine, a, a daily ongoing life and things to do and events in heaven? What will be the objectives of the events in that routine? Does it all just become all intentionally about God in heaven? Will there be any things intentionally for you, things intentionally for others? 
And as you think about that, how should that affect our view of our routine now? Do we tend to stack those categories as if things done intentionally for me are somehow sinful? Maybe things done intentionally for others are slightly above that. Maybe things done for God is the top of the list, done intentionally for God. Well, think about what the future heaven or the new earth will be like. And I think you'll begin to see that if it's real life in a real place on a redeemed earth, there will be a routine. And you will still do things for you. And you will still do, do things for others. But all of that, in a way more perfect way than it is right now, will be subsumed under the glory of God. In a much more intentional, realized way, even those things done for you and those things done for others will be done to the glory of God. And if we think about that in the future heaven or the new earth, and we say, well, that could kind of be like this life right now. I can enjoy things to the glory of God. I can do nice things for other people, obviously, to the glory of God. And I can do intentional things to worship and serve God. If we begin to think about what life will be then, it might change how we view life now. Well, the future will very much be uh, on a new earth, and that's the, our first point tonight, the redemption of the earth. The redemption of the earth. If you're looking in your study guide, the questions that go along with this are on page 59 and 60, questions 1 through 3. I want to remind us that as we think about heaven, and now we're talking about the future heaven, what we call the future heaven, the new earth. When the new earth is, is remodeled into God's glory, the new Jerusalem comes down and we reign with him here on a new redeemed earth forever and ever. It will not be a complete erasure of everything that we've known here. Remember this from a couple weeks ago. It will not be just a complete do-over, like just wad up earth and space as we know it, wad up life as we know it, humanity, our identities, our personalities, the senses, you know, just do away with all that. And then it's just something completely disembodied, spiritual, and different. Remember, packed into words like redemption and renewal is this idea that we're actually going back to something, not something brand new, as in this has just all been done away with, but something new, as in we've been made new creatures in Christ. We still exist, but there's something fundamentally different about us as Christians. That will be life on the new earth. If you have the book book on page 88, it's a good quote that illustrates this. I think I actually read this quote last week, uh, but it bears repeating this week in light of this subject. Page 88 in the book. At the bottom, under God's earthly renewal plan, I'm just going to read that paragraph to us. God has never given up on his original creation. Yet somehow we've managed to overlook the entire biblical vocabulary that makes this point clear. And listen to these words again. Reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. Each of these biblical words, we talked about this first or second week, begins with the re prefix, suggesting a return to an original condition that was ruined or lost. Skipping the parentheses. For example, redemption means to buy back what was formerly owned. Similarly, reconciliation means the restoration or reestablishment of a prior friendship or unity. Renewal means to make new again, restoring to an original state. 
and resurrection means becoming physically alive again after death. So as we think about the new earth and the future heaven, remember that prefix all throughout the Bible, re, saying that there's a reclamation of something that was lost or ruined, namely our relationship with God and the glory we shared with him in the garden before the fall and before sin came and entered the world. Now, let's look at Isaiah chapter 60. We're going to skip through some verses here, this Old Testament prophecy about the new heavens and the new earth, and then we're going to ask some questions uh, about it. Look at Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now, stop. Does any of that sound familiar from maybe Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You remember the next part? The earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was over the abyss or the sea or the darkness. Now, God is painting a picture here of creation as it exists that has fallen into darkness. But now he says, after that period of darkness and sin and destruction, arise, shine. God said, let there be light. And now he says once again, the glory of the Lord will be seen among you. Verse 3, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you, the multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Look down at verse 11. Your gates shall be continually open, day and night they shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Start uh, down in verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. and Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Simple question here to begin with in those, the first set of verses that we read. Who and what comprises the new earth? Who and what comprises the new earth? Well, starting back in verse 1, we assume that the you that he is speaking to is Israel. When we come to the New Testament, we understand that Israel is fulfilled in God's new covenant people, the church. We could just say believers. 
No matter how you view the distinction between Israel and church, let's just call them believers because I think everybody agrees with that. Believers are obviously present in the new earth. Your light has come. But then we see in verse 3 a reference to nations. Nations there. We see later there are kings there. And when it comes to what, just notice some of the stuff that we read about. Uh, most notably, I think, in verse 6, is the mention of camels. I don't know if there will specifically be camels there, but they're mentioned here. In verse 7, we see flocks, rams. Uh, in verse 11, we see that there will be these gates. Again, we see nations and kings. And in the latter part there, we see these fine materials like gold, and silver, and bronze, and iron, gold, frankincense, all these things are mentioned here. So if you look at these things that we're mentioning and you begin to list the things that we see as part of this new Jerusalem, the new earth, you begin to look at that and think, well, I know what that is. I know what gold is. I know what silver is and bronze and iron. We have a familiarity with kings and nations and people, humans and animals, the created order. So it should be striking to you that as we read this this account that Isaiah sees of the new earth and God's glory filling the earth, there's a lot of things about it that are very familiar to what we see now. So that next question, what is a noticeable difference from life now? Noticeable difference, no sun, no moon, God is the light, Uh, we see no sin, no dread, taskmasters and slaveholders have been turned into righteousness and peace, and the walls of security are called praise, righteousness shall possess the land, there'll be plenty, abundance, blessing, however you want to go. That's very different than what we understand in the world now. It says violence will be no more. I mean, every day there's violence in our world. The Bible says that our feet are swift to shed blood. How true is that of modern humanity? That will be gone. But that which is similar is also worth noting. People, humanity, whatever is meant by nations and kings, animals, created things like wood and stone and gold and bronze. So there are big differences, noticeably the things that are absent, sin, Violence, wickedness, destruction, devastation, oppression, all that's gone. But it's not completely different because there are also striking similarities to what we know now. What will it mean, though, for those similar things? What will it mean for them to be redeemed? Well, if you think about it, the things that are absent don't necessarily have to go with the things that are present. In other words, just because there's matter, and just because there's humanity, and just because there's nations and kings, doesn't mean there has to be wickedness. Doesn't mean there has to be evil. Doesn't mean there has to be war, or violence, or corruption, or greed. And so really, when you think about the things that will be present... And, well, I know those things now. What will it mean for them to be redeemed? Well, it will mean that they will be as God intended them to be from the beginning when he looked at all that he had made and said, it is very good. Without sin, without corruption, without death, without sorrow, suffering, oppression, violence, evil, without the fall, without the curse. 
That's what it will mean for these things to be redeemed. Repurposed and brought back to their original design in the Garden of Eden. In the book, the book book, page 101, a good quote there that sums up this section for us. I can get there. Page 101. At the very top, the quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, everything will be glorified, even nature itself. And that seems to me to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state. That what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it. When he put Adam in paradise at the beginning, Adam fell and all fell with him. But men and women are meant to live in the body and will live in a glorified body in a glorified world and God will be with them. And I want you to think about this also. Who is this for? Who is this for? Why does God do this? Well, he does it ultimately for his name's sake. We talked about that Sunday night. For his righteousness, for his glory, for his praise. Absolutely. But if you think about God bringing glory and honor to himself and God bringing worship to himself, that's good news for you too. Because the blessings and the overflow of God bringing glory to himself are you being able to enjoy the good things that God has made and enjoying God himself. So when we think about who is heaven for, we begin to think about that routine question we talked about earlier. Don't feel ashamed to think about your daily routine and think the things that I do for myself, the things that I do for others, and to think about that future routine in the new earth and how even the things that we do for ourselves and others can also be done to bring glory and honor and worship to God. Because as God does this for his glory and his praise and his honor, we are beneficiaries of it. And we reap a tremendous eternal blessing because of it. So it's not sinful to say that God is doing this for himself, but he's also doing this for us. It is our redemption after all. God redeems us. It is the redemption of our world, the beautiful world that God has made. His creation that he made for us, that he made for us to have dominion over. So as we think about what God is doing and what it means to live on a new earth, remember, as I said from 2 Corinthians 5.17, when we come to Christ and the Bible says we become new creations, we don't disintegrate and become something completely new, but we are transformed and made into something new by the Holy Spirit. That kind of redemption and that kind of renewal is what will make the earth new. What we defined in the old, sin, darkness, despair, hopelessness, violence, wickedness, whatever we go on and on, all of that is what passes away. So that what is left is the redeemed version of what God intended it to be. So when the Bible speaks of the new earth, who is the subject and what are the objects? Who is the subject of God creating a new earth. Well, God is the subject. God is the one doing the action. That's the subject in the sentence. But the objects of this creation, and the objects of the new earth, will be us. Uh, look at Genesis chapter 1 with me. Let's go through these verses together. 
And that'll be all of the Bible surfing we'll do tonight. These, these four, these four uh, sections here. Genesis chapter 1. Let's listen to what God says about humanity. Genesis 1 verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man in his image. And what is the first thing that God says to mankind? Not, hey, stop and make sure that you're, you're thinking about me and doing everything intentionally for me every single day or I'll kill you. No, God says, go, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, have dominion over creation. Enjoy the good things I made for you. None of that is detracting from God's glory. When we obey him in enjoying the good things he made... We are bringing glory to him as long as our mind turns back gratitude and praise to him in those things. We don't serve the goodness in and of itself. We don't serve pleasure in and of itself. We don't serve just ourselves, but we enjoy pleasure and good things and food and drink and jobs and all that we talked about to God's glory. It's how he intended for creation to be from the very beginning. Look back at Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, revisit verse 21 there. I read it towards the end. Isaiah 60, verse 21. Your people shall all be righteous and shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The fact that God wants to be glorified does not preclude humanity from taking the land in this verse it's assumed as God makes a new earth and a new heaven for us to enjoy and he says go and enjoy it it doesn't preclude God receiving glory it includes God receiving glory he says go take the land in righteousness and peace and enjoy it and my name will be glorified Look at the New Testament book, the Gospel of Matthew, verse 25. Matthew 25, verse 34. Jesus, speaking of the day of final judgment, when he speaks to those who are to be saved, Matthew 25, verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Again, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And for us to think that God has prepared this kingdom for us from the foundation of the world, nevertheless... That is what Jesus says. And we have to remember the kingdom belongs, use the right word, the kingdom belongs intrinsically. That's the best I can do. The kingdom belongs intrinsically to God. It is his. 
But what does Jesus say? It pleases your Father to give you the kingdom. It is his kingdom. It is his power. It is his glory. It's not ours in and of ourselves. It's derivative from him. But through Christ, he gives us part in that kingdom. And Jesus says, this kingdom was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Lastly, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, you know this section of scripture about the new heaven, the new earth, the river of life, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And watch this. And they will reign forever and ever. Again, God reigns. God is in control. God is over all things. Yet here, even as we approach the very last page of Scripture, the promise that we have of the future is that these redeemed people will reign with God in this new heaven and this new earth, this new Jerusalem. So when we think about what God is doing, even his plan in redemption now through Christ, we need to begin to think that God is doing this for his glory and for his name and for his honor, but in doing that, he's also doing it for us. And he is redeeming us and he is redeeming this world and our lives and this creation. And as we begin to think about creation, what does all of this have to do with creation? If I call this section the redemption of earth, what does all this have to do with creation? Uh, very quickly, turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And I won't make you turn anywhere else tonight, I promise. I won't make you. I will turn there and read it to you, but this is the last place I want you to turn. Genesis chapter 3, you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, the fall, the serpent has deceived the woman, and she took and she ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate, and the fall has happened, the Lord has already come down, where are you, Adam, here I am, we clothed ourselves because we were ashamed, who told you that we're ashamed, we ate of the tree, we're already past all that, and now God begins to deal with mankind after they have admitted to their sin. In verse 14, though, God speaks first to the serpent. He says to the serpent, verse 14, Genesis 3, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So as we think about what life was like before that moment, and now we see God's words after that moment, and we begin to see how what he says to Eve and what he says to Adam touches every single thing that we know about the fallenness of our world now. That when he speaks to Eve about the pain in childbearing, not just referring to the physical pain, though that was part of it, but that there was now something wrong. There was now suffering and sorrow involved in childbearing. Beyond physical, including physical, but not limited to physical. And then to Adam, he curses the work. Remember, work existed before the fall. We talked about this last week. But now what happens with work? It will be laborious and toilsome and will sometimes feel useless. God says, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat bread. Thorns and thistles will be brought forth for you instead of bread and fruit and trees. And so what do we see here as God divvies out the curses after the fall? That creation is turned upside down. That the way God intended things to be is no more. Now it has been ruined and and shattered by the fall and mankind's sin. So if we think about the opposite of that, what God intended, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, what happened? Well, instead of mankind having dominion over creation, it's very clear now that creation will have dominion over him pain in childbearing and then the the work that Adam will have to do for his food from that point on but what is the promise right there in the middle in Genesis 3:15 most of your versions will say I'll put enmity between the woman and you between your offspring that is the serpent and her offspring uh, but as you look down if you have an ESV to the the footnote the word offspring doesn't just refer to all of her offspring or all of the, uh, the serpent's offspring, but it's a singular seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, between your seed, the serpent, and her seed, the woman. From the very beginning, God is promising that there will come a new Adam. And from this new Adam will come a new creation. And whereas the first Adam failed, it seems like the second Adam will not. But he will tread on the serpent's head and kill him. So there will be a new Adam, a new creation, and a new humanity. It's interesting, if you want to write this verse down, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. When Paul talks about being patient and being long-suffering... He's telling believers to wait for the day when all this is realized. And when Paul sort of puts into words what that day will be like, he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Our minds should immediately go back to Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman, Jesus, we understand that, right, will crush the head of the serpent. And Paul says that there in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. But do you know the rest of that verse? What's the next phrase? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
It's so interesting that Paul turns that there. He doesn't say under Jesus' feet. That's assumed. God is the one crushing him by what Jesus has done. But he says on that day, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because if you are in this new Adam, Jesus, you are already part of this new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man is in Christ, the old is gone, new has come. He is a new creation in him. And this is what you're part of. Christ's victory is your victory. So that when Christ has victory over the serpent, you also have victory over the serpent. And in 2 Timothy 2, 12, you can write that one down too. 2 Timothy 2, 12. Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. We think about the new earth and what the new earth or the future heaven will be like. It's often tempting for us, or we are tempted often to think of it. And maybe you think about that routine of your daily life and, and and how much you intentionally do for God, and you think, well, if, if all I do to bring glory to God is sometimes I sing, and sometimes I pray, and, and I go to church and read my Bible, and you begin to think about the very few things that are solely intentionally done for God. And if that's what you think heaven will be like, it's no wonder some people think, well, that sounds really boring if they're just praying and singing and we kind of go to church all the time, and we're just standing around singing all the time there around the throne. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us, is it? And we've gone from Genesis to Revelation, and we've seen something far grander than just standing around singing forever, haven't we? We see real life, a kingdom, a nation, a city, with people and animals, nations, food, whatever it is. This is what it will mean for God to redeem the earth. You know this from the Christmas song, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. You see Isaac Watts taking that Genesis imagery of the curse on Adam. He comes to make his blessings flow far as what? Far as the curse is found. How far? Far as the curse is found to all creation. Next, let's talk about the redemption of our bodies. Page 63 in your study guide, this covers questions 8 and 9 for right now. If you do not want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, you do not have to, but I'm going to invite you to. For 1 Corinthians 15, we're just going to read a few verses, verses 35 through 38, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, moving from the broad redemption of creation and the universe, let's, let's talk about what it means for our bodies to be redeemed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 35, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Have you asked that before? I have. Then maybe Paul would say this to me too. You foolish person, <laughs> what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. 
For not all flesh is the same, for there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And Paul says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So what is Paul talking about here with the redemption of our bodies? Have, we, have you asked those questions before? As you, have you thought about the resurrection? Maybe you've thought about the resurrection of your body for the first time through this study. Maybe you've always thought of heaven as just kind of perpetually, continually living in your spirit, soul, existence uh, somewhere up there. But as we've discussed, it's a very real life in your very real body, albeit resurrected and glorified. And maybe you find yourself like the Corinthians asking Paul, well, what kind of body is it? <laughs> what does that even mean to be raised in a glorified body? And Paul begins to tell us, is something like you've never experienced before. I want us to look there at the end of um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. Verse 50, listen to this. I read this all the time at, at gravesides. I love this passage for graveside service. 1 Corinthians 15, 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's that newness, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, look at this word, circle it if you want to, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Old death, where is your victory? Old death, where is your sting? So here's the question for you. They're on the handout in your study guide, maybe. Um, with what event can it be said, death is swallowed up in victory? What, ha what is Paul talking about will happen when he says, then it will be said? It's the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of our bodies on the last day. Certainly Jesus was the first fruits, he says, but we will be the fulfillment of what Jesus started. And it won't be until that day when we are raised that it will be said, death is swallowed up in victory. So here's a question. What does this tell us about death and the present heaven? I want to shock you today, maybe, and I want to tell you that death is bad. Is that shocking to you? Of course, we know that deep inside, don't we? We know death is bad. We know that that's not the way things should be. But for some reason, Christians, we, we like to pretend sometimes that death isn't bad. Now, don't misunderstand me. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Death brings us into the presence of God, and that's wonderful and joyful. But there's still something wrong with the picture because the soul is separated from the body, and that is not the way God designed us to be. That intermediate state, remember, is just that, the present heaven, the intermediate state, because something future is coming. Death is bad. It is not the way things should be. So while the present heaven is good, it is just a taste of the fullness that is to come. Something bigger that's coming. 
something else that we're waiting on, namely the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, the redemption of all creation all the way down to the redemption of our own bodies. Notice uh, next there in your handout, how does Paul describe the differences between our bodies now and our resurrected bodies then? He says there in verse 53, we are perishable now. We will be imperishable then. We are mortal now, but we will be immortal then. I'll leave you when you go home tonight to begin to think about all the things that means for us to be perishable and mortal now. We know that we know that to be true. And what it will mean then for us in our resurrected bodies to be imperishable and immortal. I want to go through just a list, and these are in the book too, and, and he, he goes through in more detail uh, all these little scenarios in the book. What are some common questions raised about our resurrected bodies? And maybe within that question, what are your questions about our resurrected bodies? And uh, the follow-up question, does the Bible answer these at all? One of the things he asks is, will we be unique then? That sounds like an odd question, but I want you to think about it. Now we, we, we understand that we are who we are. We have a name. We have a body. We have fingerprints. And there's, there are different things about me than there are about you and everyone else in this entire universe. Uh, so we think about that. And, and then for some reason, we think about heaven, though. We, we, we might tend to think that we'll just kind of be uniform, uh, glowing balls up in the sky somewhere. And we think, well, will I even be me? Have you ever thought this before, or am I just weird? Well, <laughs> will I even be me? Will you be you? Or will we be some sort of other thing, uh, conscious or not? Well, I want you to understand that God made mankind in his image. And remember what he said in verse 27 of Genesis 1, at, even as he made us, man, in his image, from the very beginning there was distinction. He made them male and female. Still man in his image, but unique. Adam, Eve. And when they began to have children, they just didn't name them, you know, thing one and thing two or whatever it was. was, This is Cain. This is Abel. This is Seth. Later, Noah and Ham and Shem and Japheth. And all down the Bible, we see people with names and personalities. This is a good part of how God made humanity. Each person unique. Each person different. Each person with different markings of the fingerprints of God's image. And so it doesn't make any sense to me or to the author, you know, rightly I think, that we will not be unique in those ways in the new earth. Here's an interesting one. Will we be angels? The definitive answer is no. Okay? No matter how many songs you hear and how many things are said at, at funerals about getting your wings or It's a Wonderful Life comes on, and I can't stand that movie anyway. I know that's everybody's favorite, but when the little bell rings and angel gets its wings, that doesn't happen. Men do not become angels because angels are an entirely separate created order. Okay, that would be like when I die, do I become a dog? No, you don't become an animal, you, you stay human. 
And so the same is true in becoming angels. We do not become angels. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. We, as humans, will sing a song, you know this, right, that the angels cannot sing. And that song is that we have been redeemed by Jesus' blood. Angels don't know that. Angels don't understand that. Psalm 8 says we've been created a little lower than the angels in terms of the glory of creation. Okay, we don't have six wings and fly around the universe in the, in the blink of an eye like angels do. We're a little lower <laughs> than the angels. Okay, so we will not become angels. Will we have emotions? Write down Revelation 6 and remember to go back and look at those um, saints under the altar. We talked about this the first or second week. Those saints under the altar have emotions. They are groaning, they're waiting, they're longing, they're crying out to God. Later we see that there's singing and laughter. There's banquets, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's joy. So we'll have to know what joy is. And there'll be food and banquets and all these wonderful things. Jesus talks about this in, in all throughout the Gospels when he pictures heaven as this banquet, this marriage feast that's being prepared. Will we have desires? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, how Eastern religion kind of teaches that the point of heaven is to not have desires. Right? Buddhism, Hinduism, just to kind of become you know, one with the universe and want nothing and, and desire nothing. The Bible does not present that view to us. The Bible presents this view that we will go on having desires. Albeit in heaven, holy desires, righteous desires that will be constantly and eternally and perpetually met by the presence and the glory of God in Christ. Will we have senses? You know, do we think that the five senses are somehow part of the fall? I think we talked about Gnosticism just a little bit, the heresy of Gnosticism in the early church that said the physical is bad and only the spiritual is good. And so for the Gnostics, the whole point of salvation was to escape the physical. Again, not the Bible at all. Jesus became a physical human being, and he's going to redeem us as physical human beings. And part of the goodness that God made us with is our senses. And so it makes sense that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have holy, redeemed senses. Will we have new abilities? You know, to fly. That would be fantastic. I don't know what dreams you have often, but one I have often, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times, is just kind of like you're running down the street and then suddenly you can fly. Anybody else have that dream? You might have another one. Maybe you want to... I don't know. I don't know what else you'd want to do, but uh, I have that dream often, and I'm not going to say definitively that we will be able to. I don't know. I hope so. It's interesting that when <laughs> it's interesting that when Jesus uh, is raised from the dead in His glorified body, He's raised from the dead in His glorified body already. We understand that, right? That He, although He is a glorified human being, um, totally God, totally man, can nevertheless uh, appear in a room. That is locked, right? The upper room with the disciples. That he can appear with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and disappear at the, in the blink of an eye. That he can somehow uh, not be recognized and then suddenly miraculously recognized. I don't know what all that means. All I know is that that glorified body that Jesus has now is not unlike the glorified body that you and I will have. So maybe new abilities will come with that. We'll, we'll hold out for 
flying. That will be wonderful. Will we have clothing? That's a fun one, isn't it? Because Adam and Eve didn't wear clothes, and they were unashamed, and maybe it's awkward for us to think about not being clothed for all eternity. And I don't know. that He points rightly, I think, to the book of Revelation that we will be clothed with white robes, and we'll have the garments of priests and kings. And someone might say, well, that's just figurative. You know, it's metaphorical as to who we are, but we'll be naked like Adam and Eve. I don't know. Here's the thing. Even if we are, we will be like Adam and Eve, and there will be no shame. So think about that if you want to. Will we all be the same age? Um, the middle, the, in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of thought about this. He brings this up in the book, and Aquinas was the one who said uh, that we'll all be 33. Because Jesus was 33 when he died, and, you know, there's science that would tend to say that, you know, when you reach 30, 31, 32, that's kind of the peak, and then it's all downhill from there. And I'm 37, so I kind of feel the, the other side of that. Some of y'all are way down at the other end of that thing, but um, there might be some truth to that. I don't know. But the Bible also mentions in Isaiah, his prophecy of the new heaven and the new earth, that there will be children and the, the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the child shall put his hand over the den of the snake and will not be harmed. So, I mean, it stands to reason that there might be children. Uh, Jesus, blessing the children, suffer the little children to come to me, for such uh, is the kingdom of heaven. And there, there's all kinds of theological things about what he means by that, but it doesn't sound too far to say that there will be children in heaven. So, these are fun things to think about. Um, I, would, I would warn you not to plant a flag too firmly in either in any of those things. Just use those biblical imaginations. Other things he talks about, will we hunger? Will we thirst? Will we lack? Um, I think all of that can come into this last category, will we be able to sin? And we, will, we quickly say no. Oh, no, we won't be able to sin. But wouldn't that be a limitation if we weren't able to sin, wouldn't that be a limitation? And in heaven, we won't have limitations. Well, here's what I want to remind you of. Sin is not an ability. When we say that God can't sin, we're not saying God is somehow limited. Because sin by itself is a limitation. Sin is corruption. Sin is depravity. Sin is missing something. It's not the ability to do something. So when we say God can't sin, we're not saying that he lacks some ability. We're saying that he has all ability and perfection. And I believe that is what we will inherit when we come into glory. So no, we will not be able to sin because that would be the lack of something. Will we know? Will we learn? Will we grow? Will we discover I think the answer to that is yes. There will be learning to do. There will be discovery to do. I want to close with a quote from page 322 and then just ask some closing questions and we'll be done. On page 322, uh, this quote by Sam Storms. It's on the side, the left panel there. What we do now is not discarded once we enter in, into eternity. What we learn now is not erased in heaven. What we experience in joy and understanding and insight now is not destroyed, but is the foundation on which 
all our eternal experience and growth is based. What are some common misconceptions about living in heaven? Maybe you want to think about or write down some that maybe even you had before reading or studying this a little further, some common misconceptions. The next one is so important, too, and maybe you'll want to keep this and answer it as you go through the rest of the study. Are any of your views on heaven becoming clearer? And if so, which ones? Maybe you want to take that home and think about it as you read and think a little longer and then write some things down. And I'll leave you with this quote from Spurgeon. I think it's in your handout at the bottom. Christian, meditate much on heaven. It will help thee to press on and to forget the toil of the way. This veil of tears is but a pathway to the better country. This world of woe is but the stepping stone to a world of bliss. And after death, what cometh? What wonder world will open upon our astonished sight? Let's pray. Thank you, our God and Father, for the promise of heaven, the promise that we have of a new life and a new creation in Christ. Redemption, not just of all creation and the cosmos, but the redemption of our very bodies and our very, our very lives. And God, we thank you that in all the goodness that we know now, in the routines of our daily life, we see little glimpses of what heaven will be. A real life, in a real place, on a real earth, in our real bodies, but glorified and redeemed and glorious forever. Untouched by sin, untouched by Satan, and forever glorious in your light. God, help us to long for that day. Help us to look forward to that day and help us to live each day in light of that day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.